Hello and welcome to another edition of the Standig Room Only Podcast. Yes, I'm your host, Ben Standig, and I cover the Washington Commanders for The Athletic. Hope everyone had a great weekend talking to you on Sunday night, which means we are less than 48 hours away from the start of the Washington Commanders mandatory three-day minicamp in Ashburn. I will be out there for that. Uh, who else will be out there? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. With Terry McLaurin, Jerron Payne, we'll get to that in a moment with the latest I've heard on both of those fronts. In addition, we got to talk about the Jack Del Rio situation, the aftermath from his comments on Wednesday that led to a $100,000 fine on Friday from Ron Rivera. Um, so we'll get to those things, but we're going to, from an interview perspective, I've got two great guests for you today. First off, in terms of Terry McLaurin, Deron Payne, how Washington works around Carson Wentz's contract, and the team's overall plan, no better person to talk to than salary cap analyst Joel Corey, who does a lot of work for CBS Sports, at Corey Joel on Twitter, C-O-R-R-Y Joel on Twitter. Uh, an insightful conversation, to say the least, and we discussed this flat out. What is going on with the McLaurin situation? Can they realistically afford to sign um, Payne as well as the other four defensive linemen? You guys have heard me saying no chance. I don't, th- I don't see – I mean, you can do it, but realistically it doesn't make sense. Well, I'm not a salary cap expert, but Joel is. We'll get his view on that and more and then for the my NBA heads out there I got a chance to talk at length with my guy Michael Lee from the Washington Post following game four where Steph Curry put on one of the all-time uh great performances in an NBA finals we talked about Steph Curry's greatness um what why at times it feels like he's been overlooked why he's clearly not being overlooked now and to a degree are people being caught in the prisoner of the moment when they talk about him on an all-time level as a player, we get into a bunch of that and more. Plus, we get do get into the Wizards and what they should do with Bradley Beal. Michael has some uh, hard talk on that front for sure. So we'll get to all that and more here on the Standard Room Only podcast, which, of course, you can find on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you do your podcasting. Always appreciate the iTunes people have a minute to drop a rating and a, a nice review it definitely helps would not lie to you about that um and of course check me out on the athletic uh where i've got a story coming up at the beginning of this week kind of tying into just you know sort of looking ahead to this week but not just what's going on the field but there's so many distractions off the field um as well and i want to get into a couple of these things i'm going to be as brief as i possibly can first off on terry mclaurin my sense is, according to uh, having talked to someone close to the situation, I don't believe Terry McLaurin is going to be in Ashburn this week. He was in town over the weekend, but my understanding is he was he was expected to be back in South Florida by Sunday. That's where he's been training since he left the team around the time of the NFL draft. McLaurin is... Uh, obviously, you know, he's been dealing with wanting to get a new extension. He's in the, in the last year of his rookie deal. Um, you know, it's one thing to skip the voluntary workouts, which he just did for the past few weeks, but it's another thing to skip the, skip the mandatory. Um, I think that's a big message that he's sending to the team. And, you know, my sense is whatever contract talks have been had, they have not produced much. And, 
that he's skipping, I think, sends a pretty clear signal of his level of frustration. Uh, so keep that in mind. Again, there's a long way to go before we get to the start of training camp. And, you know, wouldn't say it's not going to get done eventually. But right now, it doesn't feel like everybody's in or doesn't feel like they're in a good space um, where things are at. So, uh, you know, I think the question here on some level is where what's the what's the negotiation glitch? You know, there's been a huge uh, resetting of the wide receiver market. Eight different wide receivers are now received deals this year in which they will be now making at least $20 million annual average salary. Some of that's funny money, but when we just look at the books, that's what we're talking about. And McLaurin, for all kinds of ways, fits in there somewhere. And there, and and then the, the question is just a matter of how high is his side looking to go, and does Washington not a, a, agree? You know, Washington may not have thought when the season ended that they would be in this position, and maybe they just simply haven't moved off of that number that they had in their head way back when. Um, I, I don't know that that's a fact, but I do wonder – you know, they, they have been a slow moving negotiation group in the past. And, you know, that would, to me at least, sort of an, be an indication of why. Because um, I don't really know if, if, you're, if you're, it doesn't seem like it should be that complicated. But I guess it depends on who you're looking at as comparisons and what number does Washington have in its head as well. And look, it could be that McLaurin's side is, is asking for the moon. But I don't know if I by that at least, but we'll see about that. So no Terry McLaurin this week. That's, that's the expectations. As for Deron Payne, at this point, I have not heard anything to be honest about whether he will attend or not, but he attended most of the OTA sessions. So I'm assuming he will be there. Now he didn't of course, participate in the team drills. You've heard me talk about this a bunch. Um, maybe he shows up this week and, and does the same bit either way. He's also, going into the last year of his deal and there's frustration over where the term where the contract talks are there that was the last thing i heard on that have reported that out a bunch as you guys know so i i would guess deron Payne will be there but we'll see if he is and how much he's doing uh for sure uh joel Corey and i will get into all of this and a bunch more here on the podcast in a sec so i'm excited for you guys to hear that you hear me talk about this all the time now you'll hear from an actual expert on the subject matter um as far as jack del rio goes for those who dipped out last week after the initial comments were at following wednesday's um ota session del rio said um he compared he, he called the january 6th um attack on the u.s capitol a quote dust up and compared it um to the nationwide protest in the summer of 2020 uh, where George Floyd was murdered at the hands of police. Um, Rivera and Del Rio, my understanding is they spoke last Friday over video. Rivera had left the country after Wednesday's practice to attend a family event. Um, Del Rio had subsequently deleted his Twitter account on Saturday. Um, and of course, all of this kind of started with a tweet from Del Rio on Saturday. Or sorry, not on Saturday, earlier in the week ahead of the OTA session, and that kind of got everything going, leading to questions from reporters and then leading to Del Rio's own comments. Now, I think a, a question a lot of people have at this point is, what does this mean for the players in the locker room? 
you know, we have yet to hear from any of the players on the team, as far as I know, make a comment about any of this. Um, they haven't really said anything during Del Rio's two years here, even though he's been active on Twitter talking politics. Um, and some of his views um, would go against things that were being uh, championed um, in the summer of 2020, depending on one's point of view. Um, obviously, there was a lot of talk about police brutality that summer and so on. And from the certain communities, uh, the African-American community in particular, the, uh, some of Del Rio's comments may be be hurtful. But that said, we haven't heard from any of the players. And my sense is, and this is obviously not a, a consensus, I have not talked to, or I should say, it's not, you know, I haven't talked to a majority of people or anything along those lines. I've talked to a handful of people you know, with and around the team who, who are familiar with the people people involved and so on. And my sense is it's a couple of things. One, I think players is generally really like Jack Del Rio, uh, obviously particularly on the defensive side of the ball. So, you know, again, it's not like he's saying he hasn't been talking politics for a while. Um, I took interviewed Del Rio in 2020 in August of that year. Um, and among the topics we got into were his politics and that he tweets. And does this lead to any issues with players? And at that time, he said he didn't think so, but he would talk to them if needed. He said the same thing effectively on Wednesday. Um, so there's that. The other point of view that I heard from some is that there are there may be players who are just simply resigned to knowing that many around the league share views that Del Rio expressed, and they have just simply learned to put on blinders and focus on their job. Um, you know, Del Rio is ultimately the coach, therefore the guy who's saying who's playing where, how much, and so on. And it may, be, you know, some may just decide we're just going to move forward and not worry about it. So I don't know that anything will necessarily blow up in the locker room. I know some people are just speculating that, but I haven't gotten that sense. But as we know, the world changes pretty quickly in these parts. So we'll see what happens. Um, we'll see if Del Rio, you know, because all the way everything ended, the way, the way everything happened and the players were dispersing after Wednesday, I don't know that Del Rio's had the chance to talk to too many people, at least maybe on his own, but not as a group. So we'll see if Del Rio does, in fact, say anything to the team um, before uh, the before the uh, minicamp kicks off. We'll see about that all right so i, I want to get now to the interviews we'll start with joel Corey. he and i spoke for an interview for the site so we did, it wasn't a general standard podcast interview i'm going to sort of jump into the middle of it um and then we'll get to michael lee after that but for for joel Corey, um the question that i kind of led into this was if if ron rivera keeps sort of saying this is a big year for them that they need to make this move how come they haven't been more aggressive in various ways with their actions um now that they do have some extra cap space they have Carson Wentz's contract to play around with if they want how come they haven't been as aggressive if Rivera is saying they kind of need to make a big move this year so we'll start right there here's Joel Corey on that well if you're really gonna go for it then you start doing something they haven't done it and I'm glad they haven't you do what the Titans did with Julio Jones's contract after they traded him. They converted um, salary into signing bonus, um, which created for them 11-2 a cap space last year. So you could have converted a decent amount of Carson Wentz's salary into signing bonus, created more cap room. Then you'd have more flexibility to go out and have a spending spree in free agency. 
I wouldn't have done that. And I'm glad they haven't for one reason. Um, to me, there's a red flag that Carson Wentz's biggest supporter is Frank Wright and his team gave up on him after one year. And this, he's on stop number three. So I would want to keep the flexibility, which they are, in case it doesn't work out. He should be the second best quarterback in the division um, behind Dak Prescott, which if he's the Carson Wentz, a better version of Carson Wentz than we've gotten in most years, um, even if you get the version, not the one who imploded the last year in Philly, but the one you got the year before that, you might be in the mix for the playoffs. And if so, paying 81.7 over $3 million for a quarterback, is in today's market a pretty good value um, but that's where things could have uh, if you really wanted to be hyper aggressive you could have gone the route of restructure Carson if you're talking tomorrow be damned and let's let's just go for broke today right and and there seems to be and I appreciate the way you said that because there seems to be a way of sort of in town this notion of the commanders are not really that they're they, they may claim they're believing in Carson Wentz but the fact that they didn't push money back maybe suggests they're not and I'm kind of going with the view of why why do it the best part of the trade since you already gave up the kit and caboodle to get him I don't know if that's the right phrasing but you know what that's I mean. fair enough <laughs> because they gave up the farm to get him the best part of the deal is he has no guarantee money left so they could in other they could still do things in the uh, getting other players by moving other monies around, like I said, they could have taken Landon Collins' money and made it pre-June one. I didn't want to mess with the Wentz money. Let let him let's see what he does, but I can still believe that it could be good and his next two years are good. So I'm already set as long as he plays well, I don't have to do anything with him. Oh, exactly. And you'd have him for basically fifty-three five over the next two years. And you take a quarterback at fifty three five over the next two years, you couldn't franchise a quarterback for two years for that type of money. It's going to be more than that. It's going to be like 32 is franchise tag next year. Um, that ballpark. So yeah, you you have a great value. If Carson Wentz is just competent, then that's a good, that's a great value. And if he's competent, you guys are going to be probably, well, this division, nobody ever repeats as champion. <laughs> right. um, I don't know how long it's been, what, 20 years or something that you're going to be in the mix um, potentially for a playoff spot. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, it seems to me they, they they showed they have faith in him by making the trade and giving up all they gave up, and the rest of it, they're not messing with it for whatever reason. Um, That, okay, so all that said, Ron Rivera has said repeatedly that once they made the deal to get Wentz, that they had to reshape what they were doing, which always seems to me to be slightly disingenuous because they were trying to get Russell Wilson or Aaron Rodgers or any quarterback that guy's going to cost a lot of money. So you uh, had Those to, guys would be a different price point. Right, right. No. They would even be higher. Right. Yeah, particularly Rodgers, because you'd have to give him a new contract immediately. Um, Wilson's still playing out the final two years of his contract, but you know you'd have to pay him the next year. So if you did that, you're probably going to be more conservative than you are now because you have to plan for a new contract, which will be $45, 50000000 million for Wilson. Uh, once you don't have to do that with him. Right. So – this now sort of sets into the rest of the situations. Okay. You've taken on this quarterback. You hope it works out. We'll see what happens, but you got the quarterback and whether it's Wentz or not, if you want to vet, it's going to cost you money, somebody next year. Uh, so this leads now to the two main guys they have kind of up in the air with Terry McLaurin and Deron Payne. Uh, Terry McLaurin. So obviously the wide receiver market blew up this year. <laughs> good for good, good timing for him. 
Uh, one of the guys in his class, AJ Brown's already gotten paid. Terry McCorn's an interesting case. He's had some good production. Maybe he isn't viewed as elite as some of the other guys who've gotten paid. He also has had a lot of hindrances, this you know, constant upheaval with the quarterback situation. He's also a team leader, and this organization can't afford to screw around too much with a, with a guy who's incredibly popular from the fan base perspective. So is there a good comp out there for you when when you look at McLaurin as just as an individual before we even get to the salary cap aspect? Is there a good comp out there at this point that makes sense for, for both sides? Well, it's really that the market has changed more than anything else, and you're going to pay the going rate if you want to sign him um, long term. Uh, you could back your way into it um, from the standpoint that – if you have to have him play out his contract, which isn't necessarily the best thing from a locker message you send to the locker room and also a PR standpoint, and this team probably is in need for good PR um, un- because of other circumstances, the franchise tag next year is going to be around $20 million. So if you start playing the franchise tag game, that hasn't worked out when the, Reds, when the uh, commanders have done that because I can think of two guys who come to mind, um, Cousins and Sheriff, who've done two years of franchise tags and bolted. Um, so you, do you really want to try to go that route with him? Um, he's probably, probably saw what happened. It's like, well, we lost our best offense alignment they wouldn't pay him. Um, so that's 20 million. Do it again, 20% raise. That's 24. So that puts your average of 22 right there. But if I'm, um, McLaurin, I'm looking at the standpoint, if you look at my average production over my first three years compared to AJ Brown's, <laughs> I've got more receptions and I've got more yards in my average year than he did in Tennessee. And I know in Tennessee, the offense was different. It it was Derrick Henry, Derrick Henry, and Derrick Henry. So you're not really throwing that much, but he can say, well, whoever played with it's a quarterback. His best quarterback is now the one he's got this year. So I think it's going to be 21. If you get him at 21 uh, per year, then that's probably the best you're going to be able to do, but it's probably going to be north of 22. I would think. I don't know oh. if it gets to 25 to AJ Brown, but if I'm him, I wait for one reason. Um, Tory Dandy can kind of controls his whole market, right? He represents uh, Chris Godwin and Mike Williams who were before the real explosion in March, right when the league year started right about, about then 20 million per year. He also represents AJ Brown who's now 25. He also represents DK Metcalf and Debo Samuel. So patience is my friend. Um, So those guys are on my draft class. And if they're all in the 25 million neighborhood or more, then that's not good for, for Washington that they're going to have to be close. It's going to have to be close to that level. So there is something for Washington trying to get it done sooner rather than later before those two deals um, come down. And yeah, no, for, for, for sure. Um, it, it does kind of make sense to see what happens. You know, you mentioned the franchise tags, 20 million next year. If they go that route, 24 million the following year, if you factor in the, the salary he's making this year, which is like 3 million, th- then that's not going to change no matter what's happening here. Then from a team perspective, that's really a, a good, you know, annual average value over, over the th- three years from McLaurin, obviously not so much. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the double franchise tag would kind of make sense from the team perspective, again, other than, like you said, the, the, the locker room dynamic, but from a salary and cap you, perspective. And you could rub the player the wrong way where he's like, I want a long-term deal. He, right. He's not showing up to stuff right now, so obviously he's not happy with where things are. You make him play it out and you franchise him, 
<laughs> you may alienate him, have a guy who's like, I want to be here to a guy who's like, I want it once, once the time comes, I want to be any place but here. That's the risk you run. So let's just say they do figure out a long-term deal. Um, what do you see as the sort of parameters of such a deal that, that would kind of make sense for both sides? Um, let's say four-year extension. Um, 22 half, 22 and a half million per year. Uh, you're probably going to have to go 40 ish fully guaranteed at signing and probably get in the fifties for overall guarantees. Okay. Is there, and that seems to be in line with what they're doing. Is there a number that becomes too high for Washington? Cause it seems like they kind of almost have to do something. But, you know, you yeah, we'll see if A.J. Brown's a tipping point for them. <laughs> but the good thing is you've got it's not a rookie quarterback contract, but in terms of veteran contracts, you've got Carson Wentz cost controlled. And if he doesn't work out, you can cut bait next year. And obviously, you've given up draft picks and that's a whole different issue. Uh, but you could wipe off 26-1 and 27-2 off the books the next two years and go try to find another quarterback, whoever that may be. But you're, you're not devoting huge money to a quarterback. Um, so that can kind of offset it or mitigate it a little bit. But I don't know if 25 million is their tipping point. Right. And that's basically where like where Tyreek Hill is right now. Uh, well, it's really AJ Brown. You're right. Tyreek Hill is at, at 25. Cause I don't count that $45 million. Yeah. Uh, cosmetic year Um, so it's really 75 (laughs) over three right right um i'm just thinking about this as you're saying this since we're sit we're all agreeing the whole world more or less that there's some questions with carson wentz's situation and there is a universe that he could be they could release him is is, is it is there a world for mclaurin where it makes sense to not take the deal knowing that if they give you the franchise tag next year you're at least going to make 20 million and if Wentz stays, then it means he did good. If he doesn't stay, though, you're like, oh, boy, I don't want to go through this quarterback deal again. And maybe you can, I don't know, either negoti- factor in the negotiation positively. Like, you want to keep me, you're going to pay me even more. Or somehow go the other way, like force your way out the way some of these guys have done this offseason by saying, I don't want to be here anymore with this quarterback upheaval. Yeah, he very well, if you make him play it out, he could say, you know what? You had your window to get this deal done. I'm Cousins Jr., I'm going to do my two years. I'm gone. I'm like, I'm going to be like, Sheriff, I'm gone. So you might as well get what you can for me now. Send me to someplace that will pay me. And if Wentz is good, you would think he's going to have a career year. So even if he's not thinking like that, if Wentz is good, it could benefit him because the it there's a pretty steady proposition that as long as a good player remains healthy, the longer a team waits, the more money it's going to cost them in the long run. So that would be the case for him. Let's say he goes out, Wentz is not quite the MVP form the year he hurt his knee, but as nights below that, and he has 13, 1,400 receiving yards, 90 catches. Well, he, he's got more justification to ask for even more money than he has this year. I don't know what he's asking, but – yeah, he's going to factor in a premium, and then you're going to have the fact that um, te- well, I know teams are using 225, 230, um, that range for cap projections next year. But tw- the following year, the cap will jump exponentially because you won't be paying back 
money as much from the pandemic, the lost revenue. So that gets factored in the equation too, the longer you wait. So speaking of waiting, a lot of questions fans have here is what is taking so long? If everybody, if, if, if everybody seems to think that Washington should get this done and we kind of know what the parameters are for a deal, what is taking so long? Why are they not moving forward to get a deal by now? Part of it could be that Washington kind of had in mind a certain range before the market changed. And sometimes psychologically teams have to adjust to that. Um, Because if you told me at the end of the regular season that McLaurin was going to get 20 million per year, I don't know about that. (laughs) And now there is no deal to be done where he's not making over 20 million per year. Then sometimes teams don't really act until there's a, real or a logical deadline, which would be the start of training camp. So you haven't seen tons of extensions get done. I expect in the next six weeks, seven weeks, you're going to see a lot more of them. And we're still kind of early in that type of time frame in terms of when the contract year players sign extensions. Do you think, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not the salary cap guy like you. You're talking to all kinds of people who are, who are working on these things. Do you? Th- I was not thinking to myself, kind of like what you're saying. Like I wasn't thinking Terry McLaurin was would would end up with a deal that's paying him over twenty million dollars a year. But the market went the way that it did. I also didn't see the Tyree Kill trade or the Devontae Adams trade, et cetera, things like that that helped shape this. So, do you think Washington may perhaps did they blow it by not doing something sooner, or is this a sort of hey, you play the game and the market worked against you? I don't fault them on the timing because the one of the earliest deal was like Max Crosby. Um, that was right when the league year started. You don't, you haven't, you didn't see a ton of extensions done at that time. And then when you, the ones you have seen done trades, Tyree kill, that was a trade. So they got that thing done. AJ Brown, that was a trade. Buffalo decided to make a preemptive strike with Stefan Diggs two years left and slot that thing in at 24 a million per year on his extension. Um, but we're really getting to the, the timing where you have players in a contract year start to sign extensions. I expect um, now and then things will shut down after many camps mid-June to early part of July. And then the month of July is when you'll see most of the extensions getting done. So it's just that the market exploded in a way nobody was contemplating and, um, Washington's going to have to uh, take that into consideration if they want to sign McLaurin long-term. All right. So with regards to bigger picture, it isn't just about this year. It's also what happens next year. You mentioned the 18.3 million that they have now for this year. Next year, I was looking at over the cap. They've got Washington's 2023 space at 12.76 million. Obviously a hundred things can change between now and then, including something like signing McLaurin to a contract. Um, but McLaurin's around Payne, and I guess you could take Cole Holcomb, or there are three sort of bigger name free agents, and Holcomb is below, way below those other two. They only have two other guys who even played more than 40% of their team snaps last year, Trey Turner and Taylor Heineke, who will not be a big deal one way or the other next offseason as, as things stand. Um, they do have next year Montez Sweat's going into his last year, so he'll be in the same deal, the situation that Deron Payne's in now, so they'll have to factor that in. Technically, Chase Young's going to be contract extension eligible, right? Going to his fourth year next year, if I, if I have all the world right. They do have a bunch of guys that you could play the cap game with in terms of 
getting big relief off cap hits like Kendall Fuller. You'd save around eight million dollars if you released him. Chase Rui about five million, but you obviously also need to keep guys to play. So they do have they have some interesting games to decide on next year. How do you, from the perspective of the front office, how do you look at next year when you when you're making these determinations like what to do with Terry McLaurin or Deron Payne? How does how do you go beyond just what's happening now into looking into next year? Well, teams do planning in three-year snapshots, so that's being taken into consideration. And since one thing you mentioned early on is Ron Rivera wants a big jump in year three, I keep seeing and reading chatter about trading Deron Payne. Well, if you're trying to win this year, you don't trade him unless someone gives you an offer. You, you don't refute. You can't refuse. If you were going to trade him, to me, the time was last year when he had two years left on his contract. wasn't a contract year. Um, you would have, he would have been under contract for basically 11 million over two years, and you would have gotten more compensation. You're trading him now in an option year for if you decide to go that route at 8.529 million, and you really have to look at the trade compensation from the standpoint. The most you get from him if you lost him in free agency is compensatory third round pick um, in 2024. So what's the pick you get now, um, which is on par with having to go that route if you lost him. Now, um, if I'm Washington, I can't pay everybody on the defensive line. Um, Jonathan Allen's under contract for $18 million per year. Um, you're probably more likely to pay two edge rushers than you are two interior guys. Payne's probably, in his mind, he probably thinks he's Jonathan Allen's equal. I'm not paying him $18 million per year. Minimum, he probably wants fifteen. Um, Chase Young, to me, before he got hurt, wasn't saying was disappointing um, compared to his rookie year. If he has a bounce back like Joey Bosa did after his knee injury, I mean Nick Bosa, his former teammate, um, after his ACL tear, yeah, then you're <laughs> going to have to allocate. Well, <laughs> that could be a thirty million dollar guy because I expect Nick Bosa to get done this year in in that neighborhood. And if you're going to pay, would you are you willing to pay two pass rushers? Uh, 20 plus million because sweat's probably looking at that market going, Hey, um, as it keeps escalating, I want to be $20 million stratosphere or more if all these old guys in their approaching their mid thirties, get 17, 18 million a year. And I'm entering my prime. So um, I don't think there's a long-term deal for pain here. Um, I could be wrong, but given what you have to do on the defensive line, I think he's the odd man out. Right. You, you mentioned some of the, the recent noise about him. That's I, I, I'm going to say I'm partially to blame for that. If you want to say um, right before the draft, I reported that it's he, that it's unexpected for what that Washington would give him an extension. Now, again, sort of part of that is a little bit logic, like you're saying, but also this is what I what what I had heard. Um, and then more recently, when he it, last week at OTAs, uh, the first week of OTAs, he did not participate in team drills. And I was told it was because he was, uh, what I wrote was angry over his contract situation. And that led to some kerfuffle and so on and so on. And I, and I also had mentioned that pre-draft that there was a trade window open. I was told by multiple sources uh, about, about that. Now I think that window has been closed because like pre-draft would have been the time. You probably to wanted it. a draft pick this year. You don't want next year's draft picks. <laughs> right, right. And also, you know, they let my, you know, they, they released Matt Ioannidis, Tim Settle signed elsewhere. They did draft Fedarian Mathis in the second round, but they still would lack an, you know, anything who's close to a proven veteran starter to replace Payne. So, you know, you wouldn't be able to easily just move on and, and so on. 
Um, but I'm I'm with you. Like I, I have been preaching for a year, purely from an asset allocation standpoint. Again, not a cap guy. I don't see how you're paying four defensive linemen. It feels like this should have been something they should have thought about the second they gave Jonathan Allen the contract. What do we do now? And I can't tell if this is where I'm sort of confused. Do they, having just watched the Brandon Scherf thing, where they were willing to play that game and then get the third, pick, third the compensatory third, are they just willing to do that again? Do they think they can sign four guys and they're waiting to see what shakes out with McLaurin to maybe sign Payne, even if they ultimately think they have to sign Sweat and Young? I I don't understand how that could be the case because I'm with you. I don't think that you can sign all four guys, but that's where I'm confused, like what they're doing here. Well, I get to a degree why they wouldn't have wanted to move him last year. You you backed into the playoffs. You thought sure. you had an upgraded quarterback. So you're thinking we got Fitzpatrick and if he you get the good Fitzpatrick and he's healthy, you take a step forward. So you're thinking win now mode. Obviously he got hurt, barely played. Um so that that went out the window. But I get how if that's the logic why they didn't move them, even though in hindsight it would have made more sense from from the asset allocation, what you could get. I don't really see any scenario where you can pay all four guys. Maybe it, it would have to be a situation where things went really wrong with Wentz. You're in a position to, to draft or, or it's going to be a quarterback heavy draft and get the quarterback for the future who's going to be in a cost contained contract, but nobody wants that scenario to happen. That's the only one I can see, which is realistically where you could potentially keep all four. All right. Um, so that was uh, part of my conversation with Joel Corey. Again, I uh, Joel, I used some of what Joel talked about, including things you didn't hear here, didn't hear here on the Athletic. That article will be up at some point over the next twenty four hours or so. Uh, all right, so you can check that out. Now we'll go into my conversation with Michael Lee from the Washington Post. Again, tons about Steph Curry, the player, what people get, what they don't where he ranks among the all-time best, and what do the Wizards do with Bradley Beal um, now that that is a looming situation that's going to be coming up here any minute once the finals are over. So let's do that right now. Here, myself and Michael Lee talking Steph Curry, NBA Finals, and the Wizards. All right, I need to veer away from Commander's talk because obviously that's a lot at all times, and I want to have some fun talking NBA, NBA Finals, but more specifically Steph Curry as it relates to history and the all-time greats and what we're seeing out of him. Because I do feel that while people have appreciated the fact that we're looking at one of the best, you know, well, the best shooter of all time, one of the best players, I do kind of feel we've hit a new level when it comes to where Steph Curry is in the overall discussion after his amazing Game 4 performance. Here to help me discuss all that and maybe... Maybe some Bradley Beal, if I can coax, coax uh, something out of uh, out of our guest, is none other than my guy, Mr. Michael Lee uh, from the Washington Post. Mr. Lee, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Doing wonderful. Have, have you been? I, I've, I've been, you know, needless to say, I've been kind of caught up in my own world over here. I don't even know. Have you been traveling a lot during these playoffs, or you just kind of been watching uh, everything from afar? You know, this is the first. Um... Well, I wrote, I wrote I wrote one story about the playoffs, NBA playoffs. Um, I have I haven't written anything since the playoffs started. Um, it's it's probably one of the weirdest uh, experiences I've ever had, where I've just been watching the games at my own level, my own pace, without ever having to worry about writing something 
uh, about the game. So I'm in a different place in my career, but I'm still a fan of the game. I love the NBA, and I still have some strong opinions about everything. <laughs> At that, I was thinking about this the other day, and I have not been paying too much attention to the Draymond Green podcasting story that's going on. I mean, I'm, I'm aware he's podcasting, and I guess after his terrible game uh, three, people were like, hey, how come you're you're podcasting? You, you know, why, why aren't you doing your work or whatever it is that you're doing? And he kind of made a point like, well, what am I, like, what do you, what do you think I'm supposed to be doing? Like get off the court and just like, you know, go to bed. And I always used to tell people this, that like, cause while obviously we are not NBA players, we, and we don't live their lifestyle. We are, li- we work when you're, li- when you're on the beat or covering games, you are living their time frame. And like you just mm-hmm. said, it, you have to be your most intense. It's not just when the game ends. We then have to go to the locker rooms and do the press conferences. And then you have to actually write it all. And that's a very intense situation. Just like for these guys, you're playing intense basketball. You don't immediately, when the game's over, turn it off and just go go chill out. And I would tell people, when your work day, your nine to five job ends, what do you do? Do you go to bed? No, you go to happy hour. You go to dinner. You do you do stuff to wind down to appreciate. Not to mention just appreciate the day itself, so to speak. You have time to do it. And I don't think people get that sometimes. So it's been funny to see this with the Draymond podcasting thing. I know there's a lot more going on with that, but the idea that, like, he shouldn't be doing that, I'm like, eh. I mean, maybe he shouldn't be talking, and that's a whole other story. But, I mean, like, do what he wants. I don't really care because you got to wind down. You can't just, you know, turn it off and go to bed or anything. You know, when you're playing poorly, there's nothing you can get away with. You know, when, when you're playing at the top of your game, you can do whatever you want, and nobody will ever complain. You know, I think the issue with Draymond and the podcast, I don't think anybody's really upset that he's podcasting. They're upset that he's playing terribly. And talking about it, you know, it's like, you know, if maybe if you play better, people might want to hear what you have to say a little bit more than when you go out there and get two points, three rebounds and four assists or whatever he had. And then you start talking about it. I was like, you know, your, your stat line looks like you're trying to teach your son how to count, you know, two, <laughs> three, four. Like you can't go out there and then start talking about, you know, your defensive assignment and what you did and this or that. Like nobody wants to hear it when you stink, you know, if you go out there and you're playing well, people will listen to what you have to say, but you don't have an audience for it if you if you're out there and you're playing below what you're what you're expected to perform at. And I think that's really the issue. You know, people criticize them because it gives them the podcast gives them a target. It gives them something to point at and say, see, you're not focused. Um but if he had had a game we had twelve points, ten rebounds and eight assists and they won by fifteen and he's on there talking, nobody's going to mention the podcast. They're like, see, he's able to compartmentalize and he's able to focus when the, when the, when the ball goes up and then still, you know, give us this great insight on the, on the podcast. But it's not about the podcast. It's about his poor play. And the podcast just gave him a target. I mean, yeah, for sure. He was, he's, he's not been, he's not been great in, in his level, he, you know, even like, I thought he was, you know, he, in game four, he was more effective down the stretch. He in the fourth eight, quarter, yeah. Yeah, he still had eight. Was, yeah, he's good defense. He still had eight assists, um, but can't shoot to save his life. I think I joked on one of our on our uh, on a thread that you and I are on, like for your life right now, who would you want to shoot, Draymond Green or Jan Vesely? And for 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 Wizards fans, that seems like an impossible answer. But you watch Draymond in these last few games, you're like, uh, <laughs> they want to shoot. I don't know. It's a um, that was a tough question. I, I would just you know start getting my you know last rights in order. <laughs> <laughs> Start calling my my loved ones, tell them how I feel about them, and uh, 
But if it comes down to those two right now, I don't want either one shooting for my life. <laughs> uh, well, one guy you would absolutely take to shoot for your life is, of course, Steph Curry. And I, you know, I don't know what it's like for, for you. Sure. You're, you're a grounded guy and, uh, you know, you're not, you're not one prone to, uh, you know, get, get caught up in the, in, in, in hyperbole and prisoner of the moment yeah. type stuff. Um, I, I do feel like the game four mm. performance that he put up, which was just an all time, fantastic one and and you know arguably the best game of his career best best performance of his career when you consider the stakes the you know the fact that you know you know obviously they needed to win to even the series if they're down 3-1 he really is getting not much help especially offensively from anybody else on his team you know clay is you know you know praise the comeback but obviously he's not close to the guy we saw uh, right now before uh, all you know, both the injuries and you know what, whatever else he's going. Jordan pulls up and down, et cetera, and it's really all on Steph Curry. Boston knows this. They have the best defensive team. They have Defensive Player of the Year, and yet he just continues to just crush them to the point where you know he's going to win the MVP of the series unless Jason Tatum or you know Jalen Brown goes nuts these last couple games. Even if Boston wins, I think Curry could win. Could if not should win um, the MVP. But what I guess I wanted to get into sort of, and we'll talk some more about the finals and we'll get to maybe some Beal stuff, but I feel like that prisoner of the moment thing happened a little bit last night because I have, I mean, you're not going to find people more pro Curry than me and I'm not a Warriors fan. I've been on him go all the way back to when Davidson beat Georgetown because it was something about it. It wasn't just the guy that got hot. It wasn't just the guy that could shoot. There's always been something more to his game, and I think people have not fully appreciated it because he's cute. You know, he's small. It's sort of funny mm-hmm. almost what he's doing. I don't, but but he's not the muscular behemoth the way we're used to in this sport. Um, but I do feel like yesterday, now all of a sudden I said, hey, on Twitter, maybe we should start t- really talking about him as a top 10 to 12 player, and people were yelling at me like, what are you talking about? We're already there. And I don't think people fully appreciate what that actually means because if you're saying he's top ten or so, you're really putting him in a level that's okay. Let's discuss that. But before we get to the lists and any of that stuff, what did you make of that performance? And was that sort of for him taking everything to another level? You know, um, it's hard for me because um, I'm somebody who feels like. Um, there's, there's been so much misinformation about Steph Curry and about how he performs in the finals. And I think we've been bombarded with so many lies about um, how he performs on this stage because he doesn't have a finals MVP. And I think a lot of people hold that against him and act like he's not, he doesn't show up um, for the finals. And I, I mean, this is the first final that he's been in that I was not there to watch. And um, I've seen him really show up and have some phenomenal games in the in the finals. Um, <clears throat> I think that you got to go back to 2015, and I go back to this game all the time. A lot of people don't remember it; they don't care to remember it because Andre Iguodala somehow got the Finals MVP when he didn't. To me, I don't think he deserved it then. And looking back in hindsight, I think we kind of got caught up in the moment right then and there. Um, Iguodala got finals MVP in 2015 because they were down 2-1 and they made a lineup change and they won the next three games. And he had two good games during that stretch. Steph had three good games. Those are the last three. But the game that stood out to me was game five. 
it was the series was tied two two. They were in Oakland. And Steph Curry had thirty seven points and he completely took over that game. And he just shook up Delavadova once, hit a three in his face, and had one of the, the, the meanest meme mugs you've ever seen. And it completely changed that series. And to me, it was the most important game of that series. And it should have been the finals MVP defining game of that series. But nobody talks about it because nobody seemed to care about it in that moment. And then, of course, when they got to uh, 2017, um, I'm sorry, 2018, 2018, when they uh, um, were going to, you know, go back to back against the Warriors, I mean, against the, the Cavaliers. And the first two games of that series, Steph Curry, was on a rampage. He completely obliterated the the, the um, Cavaliers in those first two games. He was looking like the Finals MVP when those after those two games were over because he was just so good. And but in Game Three he had a clunker. He had an absolutely horrific game. And Kevin Durant had 43. And at that point he basically won the Finals MVP, even though he wasn't even trying to get it. Like, I think he was even willing to let Steph get it just so people could stop saying stupid stuff about how he performs on this stage. Um, but it didn't happen. And uh, and so he continues to live on with this reputation of not being a great final performer. So I say all that to say last night it felt like Steph doing what he always does. And he's been the best player through the first four games of this finals. He has been, um, you know, there's just the dynamic force and everything that, you know, goes wrong usually occurs when he's sitting down and everything that goes right usually occurs when he's on the floor. So what I saw game four was just kind of a culmination of all of that and just him figuring out, um, you know, the holes in the, in the Celtics defense, him finding the openings and opportunities for him to exploit and just, just having that sheer will and saying that, you know, our backs are against the wall. I got to do everything I can, and I got to I got to bring this home. You know, I think, and also one thing I think that's sort of lost in all this is that I don't think that he's out there by himself. I think that he has a really great team around him, and he always has. Um, and I think that his teammates know what he can bring, and they defer to him, and they want him to to kind of bail them out sometimes, and that's what he's willing to do when he did it. But I think he had help. He's just not getting help from the places we expect him to get it from, from the usual places, from Draymond and from Clay. But I think Andrew Wiggins has been spectacular this series. I think he's been a phenomenal force on the defensive end. I think one of the reasons why Jason Tatum has looked out of sorts is because Wiggins has been on him, and he's been forcing him to take some bad shots and to do, make some tough decisions out there on the floor. He's not getting a lot of credit, but he's doing his part. And he had a phenomenal game last year, last night. Or, I'm sorry, game four with 17 points and 16 rebounds. So I think he was phenomenal. I think Jordan Poole uh, hit some huge shots, especially while Steph was sitting. Um, that really helped them, you know, stay in the game and, and really uh, close close the gap uh, when things got close. I think that his supporting cast is doing just enough to make sure that Steph can, can bring it home. But um, I just thought it was a phenomenal performance. And I think that sometimes – I think people are sort of overcompensating for what happened in the past where they never want to give Steph credit for being a 
top performer in the finals. So now they want to go over the top with the praise and say a lot of things. They're kind of, to me, I think a little overboard because it's not that to me, this isn't new. Steph's been on this level. Now, maybe he never scored that many points in, in, uh, in this, in, in the, on the finals, but he's been this good in the finals before, but people just don't want to give him credit. The, um, Right. I mean, to the point, if the, I guess I've, I've sort of, every time people talk about him having not won the MVP, I just take it as a matter of fact, like it's true. He's not won versus that it's a slight. I always thought, you know, this is one of the, among the, if, if people are viewing it as a slight, it is one of the d- many dumb things that so we, we do. It's sort of like, you know, you, uh, at least I'll speak for me. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one to sort of see, see through the LeBron James mystique that's constantly put out there. But one thing I always thought that was so dumb of a criticism was early in his career when he clearly was a guy that was coming in. It was more of the Magic Johnson, uh, side of the game, side of the aisle versus the Jordan Pierce scorer side. And when he would make the right play and, and pass the ball to somebody and then people would criticize him for not, um, taking the shot in the end of games. Yeah. And that became this narrative that I think LeBron overcorrected himself at times. Um, and I think that's also led to a generation of players who think that the way, you know, I think John Wall struggled with this too, that the, the, the name of the game was if you're the guy, you have to take the shot, which is complete nonsense, i.e. Jordan mm-hmm. passed the Kerr and Paxson. Anyway, it's one of these dumb narratives. So if that's a narrative that because Steph Curry hasn't won an MVP, that somehow diminishes anything, I mean, that's just that's just silly. But I, I would say that, and again, I'm with you typically. Like I was, uh, I don't know if you know this, Michael. I like to look up old tweets just to remind myself of when I was right, <laughs> you know, which is, you know, which is like, a, you know, it's kind of often. Uh, yeah. 2015. So they haven't even won a title yet. I tweeted, other than Magic, Michael, and Kobe, I'm struggling to think of a guard from the last 30 years I'd 100% take over Curry. And, you know, I mentioned, you know, Isaiah, Dwayne, Peak Dwayne Wade, we can discuss or whatever. But like, after all, they haven't won a title yet, because to me, it was just incredibly obvious what was happening here. But at the same time, because he's not the biggest guy in the world, he needed he historically has needed more protection, I think, than others, right? He can't just go, like LeBron could be on a team with a bunch of randoms, but and because of his sheer size, you really, you, you can't just like take him away easily, right? And Curry, you know, obviously when Golden yeah. State became the dominant team, they had Clay and he had Draymond and he had pieces to get to, to sort of help in that way. And then you had obviously Kevin Durant put it kind of over the top. And, and while I'm with you that he's, you know, Andrew Wiggins had a really good game last night. Jordan Poole had big shots. You know, Looney, you know, again, Draymond, you know, you know Clay even, like, he's getting some help. He's not, he, he no longer has dominant help. This almost feels more like the Iverson team that made the finals, one guy and a bunch of role players versus him and two all-stars, which is what he's had, you know, in the previous teams. And that's why, to me, it felt like I understand where people might see it with new eyes, that he is doing something that's more akin to what a LeBron would do or maybe even what you think Jordan would do. I mean, I know Jordan had Pippen, obviously, but, like, something more like that than what we've seen from from um, from Steph. But all that said, I agree. I, I just think people do not have not appreciated – all that he does, and you know, now people talk about it. Oh, well, he, you know, he's changed the game and all that. And sure, it's all very true, but it isn't just the shooting. Just like with Jordan, it wasn't the, oh, it yeah. wasn't just dunking. the scoring or the dunking. It was the the full intensity at all times to play at a really high level. And Curry has the same way. Not to mention, um, you mentioned Wiggins. 
you know, I heard people just shocked and amazed that this is the Andrew Wiggins we're seeing now compared to the guy we saw in Minnesota who was completely an underachiever. And I obviously give Wiggins credit, but you know who I'm going to give credit to having not been around the team? I'm giving credit to Steph Curry because when you have a, yeah. when you play with a guy like that, I think Tim Duncan was the same way. You see what yeah. that guy does and you have to raise your game. You, people talk heat culture. Well, this is Curry culture. He's going to play the game mentally in a certain way and aggressively in a certain way. That guy never stops moving. How are you as another, yeah. as a, the role guy, not do more when you see what he's doing? And I think what Curry does translates to help everybody else, both on the court, the structure of where, you know, where everybody's um, given space, and also the mentality. And I don't think that's sort of the stuff he doesn't get enough credit for. Yeah, I mean, he definitely established a culture there. I mean, um, everything that, you know, I mean, the reason why Kevin Durant wanted to go there is because Steph was there. The culture that was created around him and just the positivity that he has, you know, um, you know, he, he's not one of those guys that seems to allow his chips to, you know, become negative chips. Like he, he, he uses that motivation in a positive way. Like he's not, not destroying himself or becoming a negative influence on anybody because he's mad that he's being slighted or he's not getting the respect. He just works harder and comes back even better, um, you know. And I think that's one thing that that he brings to the table that is over that is often overlooked. But it's hard to be a dominant force as a guard in the NBA because the guys with size they just always have that power. They can always, you know, uh, put their will in the game. You saw it last year with Giannis. You've seen it in the past with KD. You've seen it with Kawhi Leonard, LeBron. You know, with as, as it relates to wings, and then before that, you saw bigs. You know, and that's the thing about what made MJ so awesome is that he was able to dominate the league as as a guard. Because big guys are usually what you lean on when it comes to becoming a, a, a force. You know, in the NBA, like you need size. Magic Johnson was a great point guard because he was six nine. You know, that that's what separated him and made him. Uh, a force, you know, for the Lakers for all those years because he had the height, you know. Um, Steph isn't that big, um, but the gravity that, you know, he draws, you know, just from his movement, you know, because I, 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 I got killed on Twitter a couple months ago and I'm still really upset about it where I said that, um, you know, everybody calls, you know, Steph the greatest shooter ever. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of, is disrespectful to everything else that he brings to the game, you know, because there's more to him than just his shot. Um, because, yeah, he can shoot, but the reason why he's so dangerous <laughs> is because the threat of the shot's scary, but he also, if you guard him, you're going to be, you're going to get a full intense workout because he never gets tired. He's still just running all over the court, and everybody has to pay attention to him. And if everybody's got their eyes on Steph, that means that his teammates get so much more opportunities. They get an opportunity to get so many good looks. You know, Clay Thompson benefited from playing with him all those years. You know, when KD got to play with him, he had never played freer in his life. He never had an opportunity to just go one-on-one and attack and just destroy the opposition at the level that he is now. I mean, we know how great KD is, um, but playing with Steph just opened everything up for him to really – reach heights that he didn't even know that he could reach as a player. Um, and that's, that's a credit to him. And I, I think that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm glad that Steph is finally getting, you know, props for everything. Um, the one thing, like I said, in terms, as it relates to, you know, this series and, and, and game four, 
the, the reason why I'm not going overboard in terms of like saying you know everything else, uh, saying it's the greatest or whatever, is because of, I also look at the Boston Celtics as a really you know great defensive team, but also a very flawed offensive team. Yes. That there was no counter to what Steph was doing. There was nobody else that had raised his game to like bring that out of Steph. What Steph did was just solely on him saying, I'm not allowing my team to lose this game. But there was nobody on the other team that was matching him shot for shot like in a duel. They just kind of stumbled over themselves <laughs> the whole fourth quarter. Um, and, you know, a lot of that is with Steph, Steph's will, you know, kind of taking over. But you got a young team, or at least not not young in the sense that they have, they're not playoff tested, but they've never been on this stage. And they've never really – uh, been forced to elevate their game, and they're trying to figure out, you know, who they are on this stage. Um, you know, it's not like he's going up against Kawhi. You know, it's not like he's going up against, um, you know, somebody else who's or you know, LeBron. You know, somebody else who can match him mentally and kind of have that sort of um, like attitude that I'm not going to lose. I'm not going to let anybody here be better than me tonight. Um, the other guys he's facing are still trying to figure it out. So um, I think what Steph is doing is there's nobody pushing him right now other than him. And I think that's that's admirable in itself. Uh, absolutely. And this kind of veers into perfect segue into sort of a topic I was going to potentially bring up. Um, and that is, with that, uh, so my uh, colleague at The Athletic, John Hollinger, who you know, uh, yeah, wrote a story. Yeah, excellent piece. Did, did you saw that about the uh, the teams versus sort of that this is more of a team era rather than a superstar? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if I agree with him, though, and it's for the reason that you just said. Now, I'll, I'll let you say what you want as well. But, like, uh, if you look at, like, the superstar, right? Like, so the thing is that there's a difference between, like, let's just say the Celtics win this series and Jason Tatum ends up being the MVP. And, you know, look, if he goes 40 and 40 the last two games – well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll maybe we'll view him in something of a different light. But he's a really, really good player. But he's not one of the old. He's not playing. He's not one of those guys. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna not say. Yet, no. I'm not gonna t- tweet. I haven't seen th- more than three. You know, I haven't seen only three good forwards better than him in the last thirty years. We're not. We're not doing. <laughs> we're not doing that. That's not a knock on him. That's just the reality is. But on the other hand, I could maybe make the argument for, like, say, a guy like Giannis what he was able to do last year because what it wasn't just that they won he was doing things you're like wow this is another level you mentioned Kawhi what he was what he's been able to pull off now multiple times in the finals is pretty special obviously there's LeBron right let's just even say some other guys like Nikola Jokic just won back-to-back MVPs but you know his the two other the two best players on his team aren't didn't even play this year so he couldn't even you know or didn't play much this year in case of Porter like so he couldn't even he didn't have enough help to get there. I think Joel Embiid might be one of the all-time great dudes, but, you know, his number two was either Ben Simmons or James Harden. That was going kind of nowhere. And my point is, like, I think there are other guys who we could be looking at going, they could be kind of doing what Steph is doing to a degree, but they didn't have enough help. Like, at least in Golden State's case, while maybe this is not the team that they had a few years ago, they largely have their team. Other than James Wiseman, who really hasn't been playing all year, they have their team, right? It's not like they're missing guys the way these other teams were. Yeah. Um, and then throughout the playoffs, right, they get Denver, I already said their deal. Round two, Memphis, John Morant gets hurt. 
Round three, Luca is, to me, one of those dudes. He, uh, barring injury, he's going to be one of the all-timers, but he has no supporting cast right now, right? And then you look yeah. at, like, Boston. They go up in the first round against the Nets, who are just completely diminished with everything that's going on with them. Round two, the Bucks have no Chris Middleton. And round three, I mean, Miami just beat up to hell, right? I mean, Jimmy Butler's great, but, yeah, they're just beat up. So this is a war of attrition, and these are the two teams that came out on top. Um, that's why, to me, I don't really know if I'm buying that this is an era of teams. I just think that the star players, the guys who could do the thing that Steph is kind of doing, just aren't here right now. But I that and that's just going to happen for circumstances. But you tell me, what do you what do you make of that? No, I, I think this is probably the first time I can recall that say the five or six best players in the NBA were none of them were on the best team. Or those five or six best teams you know, in the NBA, um, because uh, for a lot of factors, um, you know, they haven't the organizations they are haven't done a, uh, a good job of building teams around them. Sulky situations with injuries, um, you know. So I think it's sort of a, a unique year, you know, because when I look back at the last couple of you know championships, I would say that. Um, you know, Giannis was a superstar. You know, he was a star that had wheeled them to win. Um, the year before that, you know, Anthony Davis and LeBron together, um, you know, playing at a high level uh, in the bubble. And then you had Ka- um, Kawhi playing at a high level, KD playing at a high level. This year just seems sort of a fluky year where, you know, it just – who knows where it leads in the future? But I, I think what it has done is that I think it's given another formula to organizations to say you don't have to go chasing stars to be competitive, especially when it comes to the postseason. You just got to be playing right at the right time, make sure your guys are healthy, and that you got a system that the guys trust and believe in and that they can play with. Um, I think that'll make all the difference because I, I think, honestly, you know, as great as Boston has been this postseason, you know, Milwaukee's still pushing the seven games, you know, without Chris Middleton. I think if you can put Chris Middleton in there, they probably win that. The year before that, you know, when Milwaukee won, they took advantage of the fact that Kyrie Irving got hurt. Um, and they were able to, you know, use that opening to win a championship. Every every run is going to require some luck. It's going to require something. But this, this year is weird because when I look at when the two teams that made it to the finals, I was there. I don't think I've ever reached a Final Four conference finals where the teams that were in the finals were so flawed, like like obvious flaws, like weaknesses that are going like really play out and just in like ways that you just you, you are predictable. Um, and even in this finals, it feels like these teams are, you know, the games are decided by the fact like which Boston team is going to show up. The Warriors have been pretty consistent. Like you know what you're gonna get out of them every game. But the with the Celtics is like they they they've been a roller coaster ride. Uh and they like to play with their food a lot too. So they're not a team that's just gonna just dominate you and destroy you. Um, but they also kinda they have homegrown talent. They've developed their stars and sort of groomed them to sort of take on these roles. And, you know, Tatum's still just twenty four years old, so um you know, that, a lot that, to, he's that, been, that's crazy. It feels like Bradley Beal was walking him to school 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh. But, I mean, it's just it, – it. I think there's there's so much 
more there that he can become. And that's why I think, you know, I think he's he's trying to figure it all out. And as he's doing it on the biggest stage, and so it's going to be gruesome sometimes. And I think even if you look at the Warriors, the first time they made it to the finals in 2015, that wasn't a pretty series. They played against the Cavs. I mean, they, they trailed 2-1, and Matthew Dovadova was, like, getting credit for, like, saying he locked up Steph and all those crazy stuff that was kind of coming out of that. And LeBron was winning with uh, Timothy Mozgov at center and everything. So it was sort of a, a weird um, situation that was playing out. And they took their lumps and they tried to figure it out. Then they did, and they wound up winning. And now we obviously look at that, that team in a much different light than, than we did while we were going through it. So, you know, it's tough to say, but I, I do think that um, what this year is showing other organizations is that 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 you know intense chase for superstars or a star or like free agents and all those other things, trading for a star, trying to you know you don't have to do that you know if you really want to build a contender you you can build a contender the organic way you can draft develop and uh, and and see your talent kind of come together as opposed to trying to chase it. You know, I think that, like you mentioned, how Brooklyn was in shambles, you know, when they got taken advantage of by Boston. To me, I think it just proves that, you know, if you're an organization that establishes a culture, you don't need to, you know, abandon that culture just to get stars on your on your roster. Um, they, they blew that up because they allowed themselves to sort of be suckered by, um, you know, what they thought they were getting in terms of just star power instead of just trying to keep building and growing with what they had. They they had a lot of talent on that team when they added Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And a lot of that talent is gone. And now you just have two stars and a bunch of big role players. You're not going to compete like that. But if you have a complete solid team, you're going to have a chance to really put together a deep, solid run and not just try to get that one, that one ring or whatever that, that you think you you need to, you know, give your organization credibility. Well, and, you know, I, I was, as I was listening to you discuss this, I was kind of thinking that, you know, is this all, is this, this year on some level almost the end result of the, the player empowerment era? Cause you mentioned the Nets. Like, I think Durant made a mistake in real time, uh, so lining himself oh, up with, with, with Kyrie when he, I mean, forget cause leaving Golden State, which was obviously, yeah. you know, the, the ultimate place to be. If he wants to get out for all the, we don't have to litigate why he left. Okay. But then he latches himself on to Kyrie, who, while a very good player, is obviously, there's a lot going on there. But then, yeah. take, he takes it to another level. A lot of it not good. Right. A lot of it not great. Then they, but like, even from there though, right? They then ha- can't just stay there. They have to get the third guy instead of looking at yeah. it like, well, we have two superstars. How do we build around them? And they traded away a bunch of stuff, including Jared Allen, who's turned into an all-star, to get all-star. James Harden, who's got his own, uh, you know, history here. And like that's like an example of like there are like Durant, a superstar. He's arguably the number one player in the league, and yet because you know they had you know he kind of put himself in this scenario, things fell apart. And then obviously Harden forcing himself out of multiple spots is, is part of this whole. Era Kyrie is as well. Even with then with LeBron, you know, I know we're all going to try to 
right, people are going to try to rewrite what happened with Westbrook, but come on, LeBron signs off, if not demands, get me Westbrook, which was a horrendous move the second it happened. If they go literally and make a move for any other player in the league, the Lakers could have been a contender this year, I think. I, I don't know what happened with that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say this about Westbrook, and I'm just going to step in and step out. Uh, Westbrook playing for the Lakers was not the problem this year. Anthony Davis not playing for the Lakers was a problem this year. You know, I said that from the beginning. Yes, I, yeah. I, I don't get into it in depth, but I, always, I said from the jump that the Lakers were only going to be as good as Anthony Davis. And, and even and that, that, by the way, right? I mean, obviously they, they won a title. The bubble title is a little weird to me, but okay, that they won the title. But even that, right, they gave up everything. Uh, they gave up an everything. insane amount. It doesn't mean Brandon Ingram, Lonzo Ball, a bunch of picks. What if LeBron, you know? What if they don't even do that? They just have LeBron on those I other mean, things. I mean, when you think about it, they they got a bubble title. They still don't have a parade. They they never had a parade. <laughs> oh, that's, is that right? So, I never thought about that. They never had a parade, you know. Um, so they never really got a chance to celebrate it outside of the bubble. I mean, it's it's sort of an empty kind of championship because they just there was nothing that followed it. It's like, oh yeah, we won. Okay, cool. And then they then the season started up like within a month. <laughs> You know, they're training camp. Right. So they really didn't have a chance to do a victory lap. It was just like uh, they went right into the very next season. And, I mean, and, you know, look at LeBron's time in in, uh, in L.A. I mean, missed the playoffs twice uh, uh, and a first-round exit. I mean, they got the, the, the title, which looking back, it's sort of like, yeah, okay, all right. Um, I guess it's worth it. Um, but it, it's hard. it's hard to build a team. You know, just when you're just putting together guys who aren't homegrown, you know, and you're trying to establish a culture, and you're, you you don't have one. Uh, what your culture is is that we're going to cut corners and do whatever we can to win immediately and then, you know, and hope it all works out. But if it doesn't, then you're hamstrung and you're stuck. And uh, But it, that's why I love what the Warriors are doing because they have this long run they've been together for nine years you know these guys um well ten years now um just all three of them together um and just to have that foundation to have that um that identity that you know when you come to this organization you know you're going to learn from you know guys who go in the hall of fame or guys who just know what it takes to win and you got a, a culture that that's that's set you got a superstar who's who's humble enough to make room for everybody. I think it was great earlier when you said that he's like Tim Duncan. I, I've been saying that for a long time. He, uh, Steph just has like a, a Duncan-type personality where he's going to do whatever it takes to win games. He's going to adjust his game. He's going to allow guys to, to have their room to, to kind of shine and do their thing. Um, and he's going to, you know, also just bring that spirit. Uh, you know, because that, that, that's the one thing I think that's underrated when it comes to build, building a championship team in any sport or any level, if your star just has just has a spirit about them that everybody wants to gravitate to and everyone just respects and admires, it just goes a long way for your whole organization because you know he's going to buy in. And if you get that from your best player and everybody else is going to follow suit because it's like, oh, well, I guess this is how it's got to be because – you know, he's already got it. He's got the rings. He's got the all-star appearances. He's got the money. You know, that's what I want, you know. And so he, he sets the tone. And 
he's he's done it to me in a Duncan like way at the guard position. Uh, I, I agree, and this is why, and this is we're gonna we're, we'll get to the Beal in a sec, but this is why I wanted to get to this other component of you know uh, again, I, Michael's a grounded guy. He probably doesn't want to delve too much into who's the best ever and all that stuff. But we're gonna talk about where Curry is on this list, and, <laughs> and, and, and but I'm looking at these lists and like this is why I feel personally like, to me Tim Duncan is criminally o- underrated because I agree the, the amount of all that happened, I know Popovich gets a lot of credit, and deservedly so, and Ginobili and Parker as well. People forget, Tony Parker was like, they wanted to get rid of him like 27 different times. He was like the 27th or 28th player coming into the league. He was scared. He was scared early in his career in some of those bigger games. Um, And it wasn't until the grounded nature of Tim Duncan, I think, helped him gain the confidence to get past that. Now, Ginobili was a beast off the bat, but again, who the hell was Manu Ginobili? He wasn't some guy at Duke or, or UCLA. He was a guy from Argentina that nobody knew anything Second about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he came into this scenario and the, that Tim Duncan, the, the, the Spurs big three is Tim Duncan and two guys, no, but two guys from overseas and nobody heard of. Get out of here that you're going to tell me just, you know, that this is like no big deal. Even Scotty Pippen was a lottery pick. I know he came from nowhere, but like he was, you know, <laughs> he, a, a, was. he was a really big, um, a pick. Okay, so that said, I, I tweeted last night. I think it's time people start. We start having you know, having the conversation about is Steph Curry a top ten or twelve, 12 player? And people are yelling at me as if we've already landed on Mars and I'm acting like we need to launch a a a, 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 a rocket to get there. I'm like, no, 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 no. We are not discussing. I don't care. Nobody is discussing in earnest Steph Curry at that level. And the reason I know it is is because you have to look at the list. To see who he's a bet of, ahead of. You can't, you're just saying a hype. It's like when people say, this person should have been on the All-Star team, but don't tell you who you're kicking out. Okay? So, so here's the list. We we won't, we won't make you, I'm not gonna make anybody here rank everybody, but just as a, I think we can agree in some order. Jordan, Magic Johnson, Kareem, Bill Russell, LeBron, Wilt Chamberlain, Larry Bird, Tim Duncan for me that they're in the list. Okay. We don't have to argue if they're mm-hmm. top 10, they're in the list. So that, 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 that's mm-hmm. like eight guys. I, I'm not necessarily the biggest Shaq guy when it comes to all these things. Cause he, his size, he's the opposite of Curry, all size, less talent and whatever. Okay. But the, he, the numbers speak for themselves. So I get it. And then there's of course his tag team partner, Kobe Bryant, who look, obviously Kobe is a, I'm a Kobe stand. Uh, I, I'm I'm down with all that stuff, and right now because it's still such a raw situation with his tragedy that um you know I, I th- that's what I'm saying. If anybody I'm using the list the Athletic did earlier this year in February top ten top seventy five of all time, Shaq eight, Duncan nine, Kobe ten. So if you're saying Steph Curry, we're discussing him being top ten. You're saying you're kicking one of those guys out. I know we have not had that discussion in earnest because nobody would we we would know this. That, that this is the type of stuff Stephen A would go off for on for a month if we're going to have this discussion. <laughs> so to that end, um, the other names on the list. So Curry is 15 on the list. The names right behind him, just for you know, just so, just so people know, Carl Malone, Kevin Garnett, Moses Malone, Moses Malone, Dr. J, David Robinson. I, I don't have any issue with Curry being over them. You, you're cool with that, I assume. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with that. Okay, so then the names between Curry and Kobe. 14, Jerry West. I'm afraid to say Curry's going to be ahead of him because Jerry West might yell at us uh, based on what we saw in the uh, HBO show. Throw throw his uh, finals MVP trophy. (laughs) Right. 13, Kevin Durant. 
12 is Oscar Robertson. This is a little more complicated because none of us saw him play, but, you know, the, historically he's in this range. Number 11, Akeem Olajuwon, two-time, obviously, uh, MV or two-time uh, champ, you know, a, a great, great player. Uh, this is where it gets a little more interesting for me. I, 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 I kind of said in my head, I don't really know what to do with Oscar Robertson or Jerry West to a degree because now it's getting to the point where they're so far in the past. I, you know, I'm old. I've seen everybody play. I, I'm, I'm okay to say Curry is ahead of them at this point, especially if they win the title here. But, okay, it's close. Durant is pretty fascinating. Before these playoffs started, not a single person would have said Steph Curry was ahead of Kevin Durant because yeah. they just wouldn't have. So the idea, again, that we're saying Curry is top ten is ridiculous if we're going to just without naming names. Um, and then there's Elijah Wan. Oh, man, that, that this is like sort of my sweet spot of my basketball fandom. Uh, <laughs> so it is tough for me to definitively say Curry is ahead of any of these guys. That said, if you want to tell me he's 11, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's nuts at this point, especially if they win the title and, and the MVP. Where are you on, on, on all this? Um, I hate lists. I hate rankings. Yes, you do. I know. Um, because I, I just think, I just think it, it puts you in a tough spot because you have to wind up in some ways diminishing that guy to make your point. And I don't really think that any of those guys that you've mentioned need to be diminished in any way to like elevate anybody, you know, or whatever, however you want to do it. Um, and, and this may be something I have to reach. I, I like I was, uh, you know, you know, I like Kevin, you know, I'm, I'm cool with Kevin. I know Kevin, I've covered him for a long time. And for me, um, it's hard for me to put Steph above him because I saw them play together. Right. And there was never a game where I watched them together where I thought Steph was better than him. Like he may have had better games, but I never thought he was better than Kevin. Like never. Like it just didn't. And in and, and every game that I saw them play and I saw Steph, you know, have spectacular games and I saw – Kevin do his thing. Um, there's a reason why people said that Kevin was the best player in the game for, you know, a long stretch, you know, of his time in Golden State because at that point there was nobody else in the conversation. Um, I think that a lot was said about him. Um, you know, a lot of people try to really um, try to diminish what he accomplished there you know, a lot of, you know, jealousy or whatever. I'm not sure what prompted it. I think people hated the fact that he went there for one. And so this gave him just ammunition to say, oh, yeah, you you, you weren't that good in the first place. I'm like, no, I'm not going to be revisionist history because the history was just within the last five years. Like, I saw it with my own eyes. And I don't need anybody to tell me any different. Um, And and that's, that's sort of where I, I, I kind of get caught up. Cause I, I think that um, – we do we do become prisoners of the moment. Um, I will say this: I think Kevin made a terrible, terrible, terrible decision to go play with Kyrie Irving. I think that that could be the one thing that damages him as it comes to these rankings. You know, when you look back on it, because um, sometimes you gotta, you know, choose wisely. You know, who you who you run with, because um, you know they can bring you down. You know, and I think that. Kyrie could eventually inevitably be the one that uh, ruins uh, <laughs> Kevin's legacy uh, it, because that 
well, no, I was gonna say the prisoner of the moment with these two in particular, it's a, it's it's going in both directions. Not only are we watching Steph Curry deliver maybe the best performances of his career, or you know at least giving more of a shine to the greatness that he is. At the same point, Durant's team flames out in the first round in such a ridiculously, you know, way that like people, it just, I mean, he, it's rare. But, but again, but it, but again, again, it was a unique situation. Sure. And again, it, it, and it also goes to the team. Like it goes to the team, and, and Kevin's at, at fault for that. Like he, he created, he wasn't enough of a leader. He didn't. Uh, you know, handle the situation with Harden earlier, better, um, early enough or better than they did. But they they traded James Harden. They traded uh, a really key piece to what they had to get Ben Simmons. You know, say what you will about Harden and just whatever level you think he is as a player, he still made the All Star team this year. He also they plays. Traded, no, I'm saying yeah, but he they traded an, yeah they traded an All Star. For a guy who didn't, who never played a game. For him. Right, right, exactly. Like that is awful. Like that, like that is that is ba- they basically punted this season away when they made the Harden deal because they traded for a guy who never played for them. They traded an. Think about it. What teams trade an All Star for nothing? That's what they did. They got rid of an All Star and basically said, Kevin, carry us to the playoffs without another all-star when our team is built around three stars our team is built around three stars we have no talent beyond the three stars that we have we have just scrap heat guys you know guys that we just picked up you know uh old dudes that are on their last leg hoping to get a ring we don't have any young guys that we're developing on our own that are going to be worthwhile um you know so this is what we have. Our our third best player is Bruce Brown. Like that's what happens when you trade an All Star and get nothing in return. So, with the, when it, when the Celtics you know played the Nets in the first round, it was pretty easy to figure out how that series was going to go because you have Kevin as the only guy that the Celtics had to worry about because Kyrie's just flaking out. He had one good game and didn't show up for any of the other games. So if you throw everything at Kevin, of course he's going to look bad. He had no help. You talk about people saying Steph has no help. Well, when I look at the box score every game, I see three or four guys scoring in double figures. When I watch those Nets games, nobody else could score. <laughs> like it was a bad team. So, um, and and it, it was and it was and that's why I give the Warriors a lot of credit as an organization. And I kind of hate that we sort of debate, you know, Durant and, and Curry and like that's, that's the argument. I, and I understand it. It happened. They play together and so it's easy to kind of, you know, um, you know, make these points or whatever. But I, I don't really like being a part of that conversation because I like both players. I really am a huge fan of Steph. I, I feel like um, it's annoying to me how, you know, people try to portray him. And like, I remember when they lost the game one, people were like, yeah, he's lost nine of his last Ten games without Kevin Durant in the finals, or something stupid, some kind of stupid stat that's going around. I was like, this is dumb. What are we talking about? Like, um, by, by the way, yeah. I always hate the stat when people when the guy gets hurt and then they say, well, you lost without him. I'm like, you can't just take off a guy that scores 25, 30 points a game, take him off completely for no other player, and then say, well, this is you know what happened. You know, you can't even you know what I mean like if this is a real world and Ke- I mean, Kevin Durant leaves, you then go get another human being to play. You can't just erase the player. That that's not a thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. So I honestly don't like 
I'm not, I'm, un, I'm uncomfortable having this conversation because, like I said, I don't want to diminish anybody, and I don't want to, you know, um, you know, say anything. But I, I will say that I, I love what the Warriors did because when they, before they had Kevin Durant, they were a team that was built. They, their motto was strength in numbers. And they had a very deep team. They had a, a really solid bench. They had guys that knew that understood their roles and played to their, you know, played to their strengths. And that's it all. Like I said, that the thing about the Warriors is they don't really ask you to be anything more than what you can do. You know, they're not asking Andrew Wiggins to be a guy to give him 25 a night. They just said, you know, just please, we just need you to defend and, 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 you know, plug in those holes on the offense when we need you to plug them. We don't really need you to carry us. You know, if you, if you do, if you have a night where you've been hot, we'll take it, but we're not asking that of you. We just need you to be the best version of yourself and we'll take it. And that, that gives guys a lot of freedom to just kind of go out there and just compete and not really go out, you know, with, with a burden on their mind, like, oh, I have to play at this level because, you know, that's what they need from me. No, we just need you to be yourself. And when you have an organization and a structure that's, that's set up that way, you have a system that's set up that way, you have a guy like Steph who is, you know, willing to sacrifice for the benefit of the team and do what's necessary for everybody else to be elevated, it's just a unique culture. And so I give credit to the Warriors because they 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 had Kevin, and then when they when they realized he was leaving, they were able to convince Kevin to agree to a sign in Dre deal. He didn't have to do that, but I think that he respected the organization, respected Bob Myers, and just what they meant for for him and what they did in elevating his, his status in the league. And he agreed to a sign in trade where they were able to get D'Angelo Russell. And then they were able to flip D'Angelo Russell for Andrew Wiggins, who has been an essential piece to this run. Like he's not some, he's not a scrub. Like you know, he he may not be number one pick, you know, franchise building block player, but he's a really good player. He was an All Star starter. You can debate whether he should have been that. He definitely played at a high level the first part of the year before Clay came back. And you can see in the playoffs, he's had his moments where he's been phenomenal offensively, but he's been consistent defensively throughout. He has made it hard on a lot of guys, you know, in every round. And you can see it now with Tatum, as I said earlier. So he was an essential piece. And then you add a guy like, you know, Jonathan Kaminga, who could come in and maybe he not, he's not playing right now in the finals, but he played minutes that spared guys you know, from being just completely ground up into dust by the time the postseason came. And that was important. You know, that's, that's essential. You know, like we talk about, you know, having attrition, you know, like this, like the last team standing. Well, it's important to have guys who can eat up minutes throughout the course of a season. And Kaminga was able to do that. Jordan Poole was able to do that. So that's the stuff that people don't really look at. So when you say that Kevin Durant got knocked out in the first round, he looked awful. Well, the dude was played 41 minutes a game. Like he, 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 like the last month of the season, he was playing over 40 minutes a game. This, this 48 minutes. He's 30, 33, 33 years old. Like that's a lot to ask of a guy when you traded the All Star for nothing. <coughs> like so, yeah, of course he was gassed out by the time he got there. And I, I don't think people even take that in consideration. That yeah, these dudes they get they do get gassed out. Like they don't have anything left in the tank. He had nothing in the tank by the time the playoffs, you know, arrived. I'm not giving them, you know, covering for them. I'm stating facts. Like you play forty some odd minutes a game, you don't have guys that can eat up minutes for you. 
you have to carry that entire weight because you got a clown on your team who didn't want to get vaccinated at any point, you know, you know, so like in, in New York, when you know you needed to, and you put that all on one guy and he has to carry you for an entire year, eventually you're going to flame out. Um, and that's what happened. So I, I'm not, I'm not going to knock him too hard on this season in terms of how he played. I'm going to knock him on his leadership and just not being able to get, you know, Kyrie on board and not being able to get James to, to be on board. And, you know, that I think he was flawed in his leadership. Um, but I think as a player, I mean, as a human, I think that that was going to happen because that was just, it was a mess of a year. And I look at the Warriors on the other side and I just see an organization that gets it, that's light years ahead, that understands what it means to build a, a full program, a full team that goes beyond um, just what's happening right now. They got so much talent. And the beauty of what's happening this year, whether they win or lose, they, to me, I think they're a year ahead of schedule. I think next year they're going to be awesome because Clay is going to be have a full off season where all he has to do is just work on his game and just play. And I he'll be getting older, but he can figure out adjustments and things that he can do at his age. And right now he's he's trying to just figure it out on the fly because he never he's just happy to be out on the court again. So he's going to be oscillate ups and downs like because he doesn't even know who he is right now. This summer he'll be able to work on that and figure that out. Then you like I said you got the young guys Moody, Kaminga. Um, Wiseman, who hasn't played yet, who, I mean, if he can stay healthy, I think he's going to be a special player. Honestly, I'll say that now because he's got a lot of talent. He went number two for well, that, a reason. Right, that's the thing. The number two pick in the draft from a couple of years ago hasn't played. Like, the, yeah. I mean, you know, I kind of wonder, you know, in real time, I, I'll just say that I liked LaMelo Ball a lot at that point, relatively speaking. I'm not, I, bet, I mean, Wiseman made the most sense for Golden State based on position, but. Whatever. So yeah, but they don't even have that guy. Even forget if he's the number two pick. Even if he was just, I don't know, you know, whatever, just to help him. Now, granted, Looney's doing a pretty good job, but you know, if he's a viable center, you know, to, to use a Daniel Gafford even example based on what he's done right here, you know, people kind of like just anything. They're not getting anything out of this guy because he's not playing, and they're still two games away from winning the title. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I, like I said, Steph's amazing. The Warriors are, as an organization are amazing. And, you know, I think that when it comes to, you know, superstar players and everything, you have to take consideration, you have to take consideration, you know, the organization that you're, that you're affiliating you're with, affiliating yourself with. And, and, and I'm wondering, do they know, do they have what it takes to take my game to the next level and help me flourish? Um, Kevin didn't do that when he went to the Nets. Like, there's a reason why they haven't won anything. Um, for sure. I, 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 I really want to like dive into this idea since I'm just to make you more uncomfortable of not, not ranking the players best as the best players, but like as we're talking about Duncan and Curry and what they do for culture, who of the best players, who would you want to take from that perspective? Cause this is where to me, I would probably yeah. take Duncan and Curry over <clears throat> LeBron James, who has had chaos all over the place where he's been. He leaves, he's going to leave you within three or four years. And the other two, the other two died. Great culture. Tim Duncan kept the Spurs afloat, and one guy, one player on the team slept with the wife of the other player, and they kept winning. He did, they, they kept winning. They kept winning. Nineteen that, years. Yeah. Nineteen years. So that, Every that's every year a, winning. That's a whole other one. We'll save that for the next time Michael comes back because we do need sure. to. I like I like that. All right, because as you're talking about well, the Warriors and all that they've done, this brings us to the local team. The Washington Wizards. Of course, one of the things that's always fantastic about Golden State is 
the what ifs with the Wizards. We all know about the Steph Curry trade. You always point out that uh, you know they they, they took Vesely six in 2011 Over and Clay, Clay Thompson was there. Um, now, granted, of course, the very next year that maybe then they don't take Bradley Beal, who was very good. If they had to take Clay, but okay. Um, but that tw- year in 2012, they drafted Sadoransky in the second round instead of Draymond Green. Draymond. So, you know, it's, I'm sure if, the, if all those three guys had somehow ended up here, you know, Curry's hurt his whole career and Draymond, you know, gets, you know, that they trade him for Mitch Richmond and Otis Thorpe or, you know what I mean, whatever it is. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, they would not have, they would not have found a way to, uh, to blossom and grow here the way they did in Oakland. So they, they should be. Grateful they did not wind up here. Correct, correct. And all right, so this is, leads us, of course, just to as a completely separate topic. The, the Wizards are the Wizards, and the, you know, the second the NBA Finals are over, we go back into the off season, and everybody gets hyperbolic over what's going to happen, who's going to opt, you know, who's going to get traded, who's going to sign where. Or in the case of Bradley Beal, is he going to sign this mega extension? Which I guess we assume he will because the money involves. But, you know, it's not like he's not going to, he's going to be a pauper if he took a four year deal somewhere else. And, you know, I'm assuming he'll stay, but we'll see. But the real question is, of course, that the Wizards, or the real issue I can say is that the Wizards put themselves in this position in the first place. Um, people have heard me say this and I'll, I'll step out of the way, but I think as, as I, I have been an advocate of keeping Beal, uh, for the most part during the last few years, in part because whether it was Wall or Westbrook, I think you needed a little more of a stable adult in the locker room if you're going to have a bunch of kids. And I think Bradley Beal has largely been that. But the very second you traded Westbrook and didn't take on any bad stuff and got actually good stuff, that was the moment in time for this organization to say, you know what, this is we can start over right now, clean and free. We already have a bunch of young stuff. We take Beal, we get a bunch more, and we start over. Uh, it's amazing to me that an organization – that had its best years because they had John Wall one, Bradley Beal three, Otto Porter three. Doesn't under has an owner still saying we will never ever tank. It makes no sense. But that said, no. they're in a bind. If you let this isn't the NFL where you at least get some compensatory pick. If Beal leaves, you get nothing. So I think they got to sign him. But if they do, they will be in the worst position that they've been in years because they will essentially lock their ceiling down to at best like the sixth seed, and that's even like a best case best case scenario. That's my rant. You tell me, you know, what, what, what's your view on the, the Wizards and Bradley Beal situation at this point? And by the way, Beal's really good. It's just he's not Steph Curry and Giannis and Joel Embiid. Great. I mean, he's, you know. He's not great. He's really good. He's not great. Um, and that's that's when you make that kind of commitment that it's going to require to keep a guy like Bradley Beal. I mean, they should have traded him right when he was hot. I mean, there's there's nothing that they will have to show for it. You know, these last two years, um, with him as their best player, the ceiling is not high. It's not going to get any higher. Um, you know, like you said, maybe six. Maybe they're good enough to be the sixth seed in the East, and they'll still lose in the first round. Um, and that, to me, is just – that's just delinquency. Like, that's just bad management. That's that's just awful um, because – I honestly don't think that there's like this deep connection between the fans and, and Brad that they had to keep him because there's just, I don't think there's that kind of love affair. You know, it's not, I don't, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's as intense as say a Damian Lillard in Portland. Who well, I think they need to, they need to reboot there too. Um, but I think that when it comes to, to Brad, um, I don't know if we, I, we may have seen the best that we're going to get out of him, you know, um, 
if he's averaging 30 a game for you, then I think you know that your team isn't very good because you need him to get 30 for you. If he's getting 25 a game, that's great. You know, you look at Steph Curry, um, you know, he led the league in scoring last season, but did they win anything? And when you look at when they won the championship in 2015, when they won the championship in uh, 2017, 18, and now that they're in the, the finals again, what's he averaging? It ain't 30. It wasn't 30. He's averaging that 25, 24 range. That's what he was putting up, and that's when they won the championships. When he's getting 30, they lose to LeBron in the finals because he's, he's spending too much energy every night to get all those points. Got was out of gas at the end in 2016. He was injured and hurt, banged up. Same thing happened, you know, last year. He was 30 and it was great, great show. That league is scoring. They weren't winning. So when it comes to Brad, let's say he takes it down and gets 24, 25. Who else on that team is going to score for them? Who else on that team is going to be able to elevate them? I mean, Christoph Porzingis. Okay, all right. Well, we just saw. Luka Doncic didn't want to play with him, and this is one of those guys who could be an all-timer. He couldn't play with him. So is Brad going to elevate Christoph Porzingis? Like, so I just think that the Wizards have done so much wrong. They completely mismanaged this this situation. They had an opportunity, like you said. Um, I thought they should have traded Brad before they traded for. They shouldn't have traded John for Westbrook. They should have just traded. Brad, John, for whatever else they could get. I don't know what they could have gotten in time, but I thought they were going to trade John and trade Brad, too, and just start all the way over because the team had reached its ceiling. I mean, we know the greatest, you know, season was 2017. They came game seven from reaching the conference finals. That's as high as it's been, and I don't think it's going to get any higher with Brad, you know, as your best player. It's not going to get any higher with Brad as your best player. Maybe you look into a, a fluky lottery pick that turns out to be something that you didn't think he was going to be. But for the most part, the ceiling for the Wizards is very low. And so if that's the case, why saddle yourself with a contract that is not going to pay off for you in the long run? Like, um, I don't understand it. I think that they should have traded him a long time ago, but let's not go back in the past. All right, we, we know where they are now. Um, they're in a situation where they have to sign him because they've committed everything to making sure that he's a part of this. But seriously, can I you mean, imagine if he leaves? If he leaves, it'll it'll be bad, but it'll only be bad this summer. It won't be bad long term. But I mean, because, but it, but it will be bad from the perspective of you could have traded him for pick whatever it would be, you know, just to use yeah. the Golden State but, but, situation. But like, but, like, but like I said, I said that that pass is the pass. You, yeah, you yeah. already blown it. You've sure. already blown it. You blew it. You blew it. You should have traded him two years ago, three years ago, when it was when he was hot, when you could have gotten the farm for him. You could have gotten all the picks because you see, you know, um, Paul George was able to get seven picks. You know, Drew Holiday got you five picks. Like, uh, Anthony Davis got you, you know, the whole New Orleans Pelicans franchise, <laughs> you know. Like, they, they they got everything from the Lakers for him. So you would have been able to get a massive haul just like that for Bradley Bill. But you pass on that. And now you're in this situation where you have to sign him. But it's not going to set your franchise up for any success because he can't carry you anywhere. Like, like we talked about Steph and how hard it is for guards to dominate in this league. Brad can't dominate in this league 
because he's only six four. His guy from St. Louis that he groomed and that he that he worked with and trained. Why why are Celtics in the finals? Because that dude's six ten. He 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 can take the Celtics to the finals because he can he can that when you're big and you you have the size, you can have that kind of influence on the game. It's harder for a guard to do it unless you're surrounded by a really top notch organization and you got talent that can sort of compensate for your flaws. The Wizards have never done that with Brad. They don't have enough talent around him so that if he plays at a high level, they're gonna find success. Like he, he can't and he can't impose his will to the point that they can be any better than a playing team. You know, that's just that's it's nothing against him. He can't grow another five inches. You know, he is what he is and he's a really good player. But you missed out on your opportunity to get a haul. So now you're stuck. So if he does leave, it'll be an embarrassment. You'll be like, oh, man, we put in all those years. But you know what? Honestly, it won't hurt. It won't hurt beyond this year because you've already screwed up, right? But doubling down on it and giving them all that money, you're going to really sink the franchise. Because you're not going to be able to get talent to come here and play with him because you've got all this money tied up in him. You're going to have to have some bad years and hope that you get some top draft picks because that's the only way you're going to get talent because you can, you can't sign free agents now because all your money is tied up in Brad. You're going to have to really hit on trades. you got to hit on every trade. You can't, you can't have a trade that doesn't give you something like a big-time win. Otherwise, you're going to be in a much worse situation. So I think, honestly, if I'm a Wizards fan, I'm probably the lowest that I've been in the last decade. Or I've been on the lowest I've been since Gilbert Gilbert and Jabari's brought down to the locker room. Like, that's how bad it is right now. I agree. I agree. The hopelessness now is like, man, where are we? Unfortunately, they bounced back and got John Wall, and you had a pretty decent, you know, four-year run, you know, um, you know when when John reached his prime up until 2017. You had a, had some good years in there. They were fun. They're entertaining. They were a couple of bad breaks from possibly making it to the conference finals. Um, so I think that that's really all you can ask for. But now you're going to saddle yourself and have – one of the highest paid players in the NBA on your roster and you know that your ceiling is a bottom well you will never be in the top four with Brad as your best player unless you hit on everything else and it's going to be hard to hit on everything else and, and unfortunately <laughs> it, it might be different if we had between say Rui Hachimura Denny Avdi or Corey Kispert one of them at least was looking like, you know, I always keep saying, can Rui be Pascal Siakam, a guy that, like, j- jumps up levels that you just didn't see coming. I guess anything is possible, but we've seen nothing to date that would suggest that's the case. And, yeah, they have the 10th pick, but, you know, even if this 10th pick no. becomes a thing, that's, you know, who knows when that's going to be, you know, truly kick in. So, yeah, the, the, you're, you're having no, I mean, to... Think, 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 think about it like this. You know, you can say, oh, yeah, you've invested all this into, into you know, Brad, and you can't just let him walk for nothing. You know, your franchise is already in, you're already in a bad shape. Remember, you traded Otto Porter for um, a salary dump. You, you you got cap space that you used to not sign anybody. This is a guy that you went to the conference semis with. 
So you already gave up him for nothing. And, like, when they um, traded John, you know, and they got Russell and they made that playoff push, I thought that was the absolute worst thing to do because they did not need a playoff push. They needed a talent influx more than a playoff push. Now, the playoff push is like, oh, yeah, we want to convince Brad that he wants to sign here. Man, screw that. Like, screw that. You had a chance to get a top five pick, possibly, if you just, just you know, just said we well, going to just blow this thing up and just start over. You could have wound up with any of these amazing talents that came up in this, this draft where you got Scotty Barnes and Evan Mobley and, um, you know, who knows what Jalen Green or, uh, you know, Kay Cunningham are going to wind up being. I mean, I don't know if you would have gotten that high up, but if you can get like an Evan, Bo- uh, Evan Mobley to your franchise, look what he did to the Cavs just in one year. Like, I was saying it all the time. Like, you know, I know people within the Wizards, I was texting them, like, man, y'all need to just blow this thing and just go after it, try to get Evan Mobley. Like, do what you can. Like, don't don't try to make a playoff push because you're not going to get anything out of this draft that's going to be worthwhile unless you, you know, are in that, in that, in that high lottery, you know, area. Um, and this this draft was like it's got a lot, of, has a lot of special players in it. You missed out on those guys because you made a, a playoff push. But what did you gain out of that playoff push? Because you traded Russ the year after. You missed the playoffs the next year. And now you're saddled with Brad. And, like, you you still have never had this influx of talent that you need. You need elite talent. The only way this franchise has gotten elite talent in its entire history outside of, you know, that, that one stretch where they got Gilbert, Karan, <coughs> and Antoine because Ernie, Ernie, you know, had, you know they would get Gil and then he made – hit on two big trades. That's the only time they've been able to get, you know, that kind of talent here. But from getting West, you know, uh, and Earl Monroe, like you go down the list of the the top players that have played here in Washington, they got them through the draft. (coughs) And they got Elvin Hayes, obviously, um, you know, through different means. But I'm just saying for the most part, um, the great ones that they've had in this organization have come through the draft. They're not – Ravens aren't lining up to come to Washington. And so, um, especially now. So you had a chance to get some talent. You blew it um, all in pursuit of you know, an empty playoff chase that got you one playoff win. Um, I don't know. I, I just feel like everything is so short-sighted, and the pursuit of mediocrity seems to be all that the Wizards are in this for. Like, it's not trying to win championships. It's not trying to be a championship organization. And uh-huh. you know, I mean, Ted, I mean, Ted Leonsis took over the same time as Joe Latham, and when he took over, the the Wizards were a mess. The Warriors were a mess too. Like it's not like when he when when he bought that franchise, they were like a championship organization. They were like always losing. You know, they remember they got Steph in the lottery, right? Because they were bad. Um, they've been bad consistently for a long time. But, you know, when you got ownership that has a vision, is committed, willing to spend, willing to do what's needed to uh, to win games, um, you know, you, you can go a long way. But if, if, if your idea of success is barely making it into the playoffs and that's the standard you want to hold the organization to, then, then have at it because that means that you're always going to be chasing what everyone else has surpassed. 
Uh, for sure. And by the way, like, no, I mean, and look, I, I, I'm, I'm only not, I agree with everything you just said. I'm just going to leave it there because I say all these things all the time and nobody needs to hear me keep talking about it. Uh, in terms of it, Beal staying, I will just say this. We talked before about what makes Steph Curry so great. It's the shooting, but it is way beyond that. It's the movement. It's the understanding of court dynamics and, and the culture that you build. And if I'm going to sort of, if I'm the Wizards, if I don't, so many of the issues with the Wizards are, to me over the years is they're afraid to uh, stand up to any of their good players because they're afraid they're going to leave. Uh, if they do, that they you know, and that's what when you're um, uh, when you're when you lack confidence, that's what's going to come out, and then that's how this organization has been, and and the culture has never been um, great because you don't have the better players understanding from the top down what it what what is required of them to win but anyway if i'm them or looking at beal i'm telling beal you see what steph curry's doing you used to do these things what made you really good was you moved all the time off the ball you are a huge pain in the butt to have to cover and you're shooting you were in the motion at all times we, we set picks for you we got you the ball where you wanted to get it you didn't have to worry about trying to beat three guys off the dribble and your shooting percentages were better you were maybe it's not fair to say you were a better player, but you were a better type of player when it came to what we need for you to win. You on the ball, feeling you have to score at all time, that is not going to work. And by the way, Curry's not doing that either. Even with he's the, not doing that. Even with all these other, you know, the fact that they don't have, you know, full throated Clay and Draymond at his peak level. So watch this series, Bradley Beal. If I'm the Wizards, watch this series and do what he does. Yeah, we got to get a point guard. We get that. But when we get somebody, whoever it is, and we have you and Porzingis and Kuzma, that's what we need to do. We'll feature you. You do those things. We'll get you the ball where it needs to be. It'll open the floor for everybody else, Make you put you in the best position for how, what your strengths are. I, I just don't understand why. That was, to me, the most disappointing thing about last year is I thought he would get back into that mode uh, from where he'd been previously when he had more help, and it just never happened. So that would be my one wish. If he's going to stay and all that stuff, at least do that part, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. I just don't have a lot of confidence that uh, it's, it's, it's tough to, to break some of the bad habits that have been developed over the last couple of years and with an organization that doesn't appear to be committed to being great. This well, is what we got. You know, RG3, that is one famous saying here was with the commercial, you know, all in for week one. With the Wizards, it's all in for the eighth seed. So, there you go. Man. Yeah, man. All right. On that note, I need to let you go because it is uh, is late. Uh, At Mr. Michael Lee on Twitter. Obviously, always uh, one of my favorite conversations whenever we get to talk NBA and the Wizards. Uh, Anything we need to know about your world? Anything to plug? uh, Anything along those lines? Not right now. Um, I'm laying low, working on something that I think uh, people will enjoy down the road. Um, but I just got to be patient, and uh, I'm excited. All right, great. The Jan Vesely autobiography with ghosts written by Michael Lee's coming up apparently. <laughs> awesome. Um, all right, man, I appreciate it. Uh, we'll, we'll talk. We'll see what happens. All right, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. Many thanks to Joel Corey and – to Michael Lee for their time here on the Standard Room Only podcast. Thanks to everyone for checking out the podcast. Um, look forward to um, talking to you guys more this week. I will be out in Ashburn and we'll have plenty of 
conversation here about what's going on out there. And if there's updates on McLaurin panel on the way, I'll drop those in as well. But that's it for now. Ben Standick signing off. Until next time. See you.